This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're talking about Return to Innocence, a song by Enigma from the early 90s. And the theme is innocence. Helen, start us off. Right, well, I didn't have time to write a whole piece, so I have some notes, which hopefully will do the same job. Um, so I kind of mainly wanted to talk about uh, an interesting insight Hegel has about being alive and being dead, the sort of dialectic of life and death. Um, and obviously the question in this song is about innocence and returning to innocence. Interestingly, I think this, the music video was by this guy Julian Temple, who has actually made some quite interesting films. Obviously this is a, it's a very dated video or whatever, it's quite cheesy and everything. But um, there is something that I think it gets theoretically right, which it shows this old man dying at the beginning of the film. So he's returning to innocence, but that returning to innocence is a sort of death. Um, I'm going to complicate this like a little bit later on, because in a sense, when we are alive, the world is dead to us. And Hegel has this phrase, um, the birth of the word is the death of the world. So once we enter into language, almost the world around us becomes dead to us. And that allows us to be functioning human adults. And in a sense, when we think of certain yeah, um, issues of subjectivity that people might suffer, for instance, um, you know, somebody might experience an intrusion or a too much aliveness of the world and language is something that kind of seals the ego and seals that experience from somebody. Obviously, the song, I mean, something that maybe you guys are going to talk about that kind of really clearly comes to mind is sort of like the question, like a racist question, because it's a, it, um, the world music genre, obviously, is sort of, especially with this idea of innocence in the song, is depicting the world out there as innocent and closer to the world. Um, and in a sense, even in the Hegelian sense, that's, that's true, um, because they're, they're sort of more alive to the world. Um, you know, they're alive to the sounds of the universe and the rhythms and nature and all this kind of stuff. But in that sense, in this Hegelian sense of the birth of the word is the death of the world, in a sense, you know, we're saying on this ideological way that people who don't pertain to, let's say, the West from this ideological perspective are dead, are figures that are dead. They have no agency. They aren't really human. They're children who haven't graduated to the word. Um, the other kind of thing that I, I think is interesting when, when it comes to this sort of genre world, world music that kind of was around in the 90s and the sort of Benetton phase is it's very ideological, obviously. Um, and this end of history moment where we can all sort of like hold hands and be together. But obviously there's this question of um, in order to have this idea of all these different groups together, there's, there's this idea of, well, they're over there and we're over here. And this reduction of the other to, to innocence and the, the West being the sort of universal logic and reason and the word and everything else sort of just on, on, the, on the margins and in their little kind of um, patronizingly viewed natural state. It's highly ideological. And this, this song does, when you, when you listen to it and when you watch the video, it gives you this sort of warm, fuzzy feeling, even despite yourself, even if you know these things logically. And I always think warm, fuzzy feeling, that warm, fuzzy feeling you get, that heartwarming maybe, that's ideology. I think that's like a real ideological tell. And that's not to say that art doesn't evoke emotions. Um, I think art is all about evoking emotions. And I think emotions, the evocation of emotion is really, really impossible, um, impossible, really, really important for um, really raising themes and ideas in art. 
And I think, you know, work does it in all kinds of ways. I personally find that when I view Rothko, this sounds really cheesy, but it makes me cry because to me, it's like the embodiment of the crack. It's like the crack of the unconscious, the lack at the heart of everything. So art can make us feel things, but I think that heartwarming, fun, fuzzy feeling, that's ideology. So yeah, so back to this idea of the birth of the word is the death of the world. So to be innocent is to be to be dead. And the idea that, that the world is alive to us when we are innocent and that when we have graduated to language and to the adult space, the world is dead to us. And it maybe seems a bit weird because obviously the, the, I think the kind of common notion of psychoanalysis is this idea that like humans are speaking subjects because they lack. And if they weren't lacking, they would be... Um, they would be sort of dead, dead in a way, dead, dead to the world. They wouldn't exist. Like, so to enter into subjectivity is to enter into lack. To enter into life is to enter into lack. But it's kind of this two-way dialectic. It's quite complicated because what potentially Hegel is saying with this birth of the word is the, word is the death of the world is that we are alive when we're dead and we're dead when we're alive. So um, he often talks about substance as subject. So substance is also divided. The human is divided and we are divided and therefore we speak, but we, we're sort of more divided than the world itself. So the world also is subjective in a way. It's also divided. But basically, yes, if we were to get out of language, we would maybe return to the world, which is alive and the subject is, uh, substance is subject sense, but we would be dead being alive to the world, <laughs> returning to the womb too, being unity, even though it is a broken unity with the world. Like, you know, um, Shizek talks about this a lot. You know, nature is not, mother nature doesn't care for us. No, mother nature does not have some like totalizing, protecting vision. Mother nature is also divided. Mother nature is a bitch, basically. So basically, we, we're kind of stuck between this rock and the hard place. We can either be dead, but alive subjectively, or alive to the world, but dead. And I guess the concluding point, yes, is that this innocence question, this patronizing, essentially racist innocence question is saying that those who are, you know, wise to the movements of the world and the guttural sounds of their voices that really we can learn something from because they, they whisper the secrets of the universe. From this sort of perspective, at least in Hegel's eyes, in the ideological perspective that we, we inhabit, those people are dead to us and they are less than human. All right, Nina, you're next. Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on the kind of material economics uh, re reality of the song as well, the, the two people who were, who were sampled, the husband and wife, who were members of this uh, group called Amis, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, but they're a kind of indigenous Austronesian group from Taiwan. And they, in fact, that sued uh, Virgin and sue the the record company for basically profiting off the uh, use of their their voice. Um, quite rightly, uh, you might say. Um, thus, in a way, kind of proving your point, Helen, in a certain way that this kind of this fantasy that the, there's a kind of natural, innocent sort of um, relation to nature and to the earth that you know is somehow channeled by particular people who are sort of non-Western or um, you know. But the reality of it is you know <laughs> it's, it's brutally economic at the end of the day it's like this band made millions of pounds from this you know global smash hit and quite rightly those people who'd 
been sampled you know they 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 took it from a kind of uh sort of uh french french institute type cd or something like this like they took the sample um wanted their share of of the money you know thus rendering them in a way not innocent in that sense at all so i think it just like follows from what you're um saying and it's just like an interesting note um so yeah so i wanted to talk about this particular period so we're talking here about 1994 um which is obviously five years four or five years after the kind of collapse of communism and the um inauguration of a new unipolar um world uh, uh where history is is uh if not quite ended, sort of become rather um, uh, global. And, you know, there is a kind of great deal of celebration in a certain way of this um, strange victory of the global. And I think almost then this desire for a return to innocence is the sense of almost like a, a fantasy of historical innocence as well. And... So everything is going backwards. The 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 old man becomes young again, and the the fat woman becomes thin, <laughs> uh, thus sort of perhaps indicating that uh, the the worst possible state to be in at the end of history is to be old and and overweight, um, and that the West can kind of purify itself in the ways that you've described, Helen, of uh, back to some kind of more uh, to in, almost like a rebirth. Right at the beginning of the the end of the bipolar world, and you know this kind of insertion or this kind of amalgam of a certain kind of um, spiritualism, a spirituality was very very dominant at this time. Um, I mean, it's still dominant today in certain ways. You know, the certain kind of thing that flows from um, the sixties, and you see in parts of yoga culture and house culture and so on. But I think in the early nineties there was a kind of sense of um actually a kind of uh a chaotic synthesis really of of precisely all spiritual traditions like in a way that they were kind of interchangeable and people started talking a lot at this point about pick and mix religion and you know this idea that you could basically combine bits of i don't know um yes feel good um spiritual music with you know some sort of commitment to eastern meditation combined with sort of um i don't know caring capitalism and an increasing environmental movement at this time as well you know the the 90s was really um i mean it was there in the 80s too you know i grew up you know we 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 sang in a musical about the uh, amazonian rainforest in the uh, early 90s and uh these kind of concerns were being kind of um pushed you know quite a lot and it you know we talk about the greenhouse effect um in the 80s and then 90s which i suppose has now become global warming um more usually described and you know in in a sense the idea that the the west could somehow now you know replenish itself and and become born again but not necessarily not in a christian sense so the sense that global democracy or global capitalist democracy or this strange fusion of like free market ideology and kind of some weak spiritual source um was was very 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 present and it's also tied up in my mind with things like uh the freeing of Nelson Mandela uh, you know apart from the obvious kind of collapse of communism the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the, the the collapse of the eastern states and these are really the first historical memories i have as well is from this period like 8990 
and you know at the same time you have uh yeah the the rise of world music in general there's also res- enigma also resurrect the kind of benedictine monks these these become incredibly popular at this point as well uh, anything to do with sort of chants but these kind of like you know there's a bit of rave going on there you know the kind of world music uh, global dance music crossover you have future sound of london and bands like that who are far superior i have to say um you know, but but really a kind of um, soft victory dance for for global capitalist democracy, and I suppose one thing that's interesting, and just to finish on the the question of innocence. So, in the constellation of terms that form around innocence, I think today we might talk about things like purity and purity spirals, and a certain kind of uh, desire for moral goodness on the part of. Um, you know, woke culture or whatever you want to say, the idea that somehow if you say and do the right things, you will be exempt from the dirtiness, the negativity of the human subject, but also of human history, you know, that we can somehow um, eradicate or move beyond in a final definitive way from the violence and the exploitation and the oppression of human history and that somehow um, a kind of a, a new kind of uh, moral order is is possible and i think the opposition here is is not so much the one of like innocence and experience which is the the opposition we would get in someone like william blake for example where innocence is tied very much to the the child really and that, that's kind of obvious in a way but it's also tied to the 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 being for whom experience has not yet really happened you know so obviously for blake the one of his main ideas i suppose is that um, it's ex- it's through experience that we're taught various things, you know, and and it could be like the road of excess leading to the palace of wisdom, or when he says, you know, in order to know what is enough, we must know what is more than enough. You know, the innocent is um, someone, or it could be an animal too, or a child, who who does not yet have this kind of encounter with the world. And I think, you know, purity is something slightly different. This desire for contemporary purity is... It's definitely an avoidance of experience. It's definitely an avoidance of a certain kind of life, which would include risk, sexual danger, violence, uh, disagreement, uh, you know, upsetting encounters, you know, the stuff of every day, really. Um, it's a it's an attempt to kind of stay that off or to pretend or protect, you know, and at the moment we're having another moral crisis around private schools in Britain and sexual abuse in inverted commas that's going on there. Um and I think, you know, just just to finish, I suppose, like the one quote that really came to mind, and I often think about this quote, and it's from Sartre, and it's from his play um, Dirty Hands. And it one of the characters says to the other, I suppose that you're half victim and half accomplice, like everybody else. You know, and th- this idea that we are basically always morally both good and bad, let's say, to put it extremely simplistically, or that we are always ambivalently positioned in relation to the good and whatever we want to say the opposite of the good is, um, is something that's that's kind of causing a, a, a kind of a schism or paroxysm in contemporary culture because people want to put the fault line not in themselves and not in humanity as such, but in history, um, and to say that there is a, a divide between the good us and the bad past and that some people are the bearers of the bad past and that these are the people that we have to oppose or cancel or destroy rather than accepting which is much harder to accept that everyone is an amalgam of you know 
abuser and abusee or oppressor and victim and and all of those other things that psychoanalysis amongst other things teaches us hmm. all right i'm up the lyrics of return to innocence explicitly equate returning to innocence with returning to the self just look into your heart my friend that will be the return to yourself the return to innocence don't care what people say just follow your own way an innocent person believes good people will be rewarded and bad people will be punished. If you stay true to your values, to your initial understanding of what's good, then things will work out for you in this life or the next. When people talk about the wisdom of children, this is what they mean. Greta Thunberg doesn't bother thinking about the political implications of her climate messaging. She just tells you what's right and what's wrong. If you don't agree, how dare you? The assumption here is that the values you had before you encountered society were already great. On this view, all social interaction does is distort the child's perfect God-given moral sense. For Rousseau, our entry into society causes us to fall away from our natural condition. Instead of cherishing virtue, we pursue the love of others. Rousseau participated in a big 18th century debate over human nature. All sides in this debate shared the assumption that our primitive nature offered us reliable guidance on how to live and how to organize societies. Later, in the 20th century, anthropologists argued over whether primitive human communities were egalitarian. They thought agriculture might be the original sin, the sin that led us away from our pure, natural values. This kind of thinking continues to influence contemporary discussions as Luddites, anarchists, and dietary grifters all make appeals to an idealized version of the primitive lifestyle. Of course, they then use modern capitalism to sell that vision to people through electronic mass media. There are a few key problems with the fixation on our original nature. For one, it's not clear that these natural values really are better than the values we reach through cooperating with others and interacting with the world. Children can be myopic and self-centered, and there's plenty of contemporary evidence for some incidents of hierarchy and violence among even the most primitive peoples. For two, even insofar as children and primitive tribes are great, it's unclear how we'd get from here to there, especially at scale. Children need parents to care for them, and many children eventually become parents themselves. Primitive tribes eventually produce the settled cities which outcompeted them. But there are deeper, deeper problems with this whole frame of analysis. Why would we think that we are at our best, morally or politically, when we are least aware of the world around us? Sometimes paying attention to other people's needs isn't just about securing the love of the other. It's about getting past our egos and accepting that we're part of something larger than ourselves. Greta Thunberg isn't going to be able to do much about climate change until she learns to understand and communicate effectively with the people who aren't in a position to prioritize the climate right now. In India, millions of people face extraordinary poverty and hardship. Many Indians understandably prioritize poverty relief over containing emissions. Those Indians aren't bad people. They aren't just ignorant people who need to be educated. They are part of our world, and an effective climate strategy has to include them and their pressing needs. It can't just wish them away. It can't just say, how dare you? We have to work with other people to understand them, to incorporate their concerns and their values into what we do. It's not because we're trying to be cool or because we want to be loved. It's because we understand that we can't treat everyone around us like the enemy and expect those same people to cooperate with us. Kids dream of being tyrannosaurs and locomotives, of having the power to crush evil and exalt good. Kids don't do dialectic. Kids bite and scream and kick, and when they are a little older, but not old enough, they yell, how dare you? 
the University of Winchester recently constructed a life-size statue of Greta Thunberg. Increasingly, we don't want to do politics with other people. We want to be tyrannosaurs and dismember enemies. In such a world, why wouldn't universities lay off academics and build statues of children? The wisdom of little children. I, I, there's, there's, um, this idea that Hegel talks about the beautiful soul, and obviously this comes to, I think, Nina, also what you were talking about in terms mm-hmm. of turning contradiction into opposition. You know, so contradiction exists within all of us. We are both and. The universe is totally contradictory. It's not one thing or another. And we we project out to the other, we scapegoat and turn this contradiction to a contingent opposition. And the beautiful soul is sort of a phase that the child goes through when they're sort of scared at night and they see the monster in the cupboard, but of course they can't tolerate the monster in themselves. So they've projected it, projected into this, into the cupboard. So in a sense, this seeing the other as the enemy, you're actually seeing yourself. It's the bad in yourself that you have to project out to the other. But um, it is interesting, this thing, and you, you talked about this, this, I, this desire to historicized like it's all it's this historical issue that's the issue rather than turning our eyes to the issues of today which obviously there's a continuation from history and we can learn from history and there are trends that continue but we like we were talking about this the other day like uh the issues today are not the same as the issues that particularly sort of like the protest movements um say are the issues or were the issues if we could just get rid of that but also as well it doesn't really make that much sense because those issues are already done. So what would what can we do about them other than say like they were they were bad and get an apology or tear down a statue? But it doesn't actually we still have these issues today. It's a weird, it's a weird thing that we have to not only, you know, so turn the contradiction to opposition with others, but also with the past instead of dealing with the here and now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, you know, this desire to kind of find this original fault. It's like, you know, if you look at something like the 1619 Project, you know, mm-hmm. the, the attempt to kind of, you know, quite literally rewrite history and to try to identify a, a moment at which, you know, the, the kind of evil enters the world. You know, it's a kind of recapitulation of like the fall. It's like, you know, there must have been something. What was the original crime? You know, so here it's looking at trying to find the original crime that founds America, right? And then resituating it at a different place, despite the pleas of historians um, to not do that because it's completely inaccurate, you know, and then the, the New York Times have to kind of issue corrections and, you know, so on. But you underlying that desire, I think, you know, psychoanalytically, we have to see this kind of um, need to, to to find the fault somewhere, Um you know, it's it's like, uh, you know, it, it is a very biblical thing or a kind of neo-religious um, desire, of course. And, you know, instead of like the much more painful reality, which is like we all happen to be alive, those of us who are alive, um, we're all, um, you know, complicated. We've all done and said stupid things. We will do again. You know, we live in these like complicated networks of um you know, uh, vulnerability and dependency and independence, but then on a global scale, you know, and, and of course, a lot of this, you know, I'm just reading the Catherine Liu book on the professional um, middle class and uh, managerial class, sorry. And, you know, it, a lot of this is, is obscurantist, uh, obscurantism, you know, of, of the question of class. And, bec- and And because people are no longer able or willing to see that, exploitation and class are, are much are different in kind from other forms of discrimination and oppression um but then it becomes of course then like all of this 
you know, extraordinarily divided and divisive rhetoric, you know, which is, is basically almost impossible now to see uh, continuity of interest, let's see, between the, the black working class and the white working class, whatever these terms mean. If you, if you watch the Paul Schrader film, um, Blue Collar, um, this is a very interesting film about um, using race, you, you know, bosses using race to divide workers. You know, I mean, it's classic divide and rule. And, you know, whether you do it between men and women, whether you do it between different groups, whether you do it between, you know, immigrants or you know, more settled workers, um, it's, it's obvious in a way what, who benefits in the end from this. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the function of, of slavery in American discourse is to say slavery is the bad type of exploitation. We don't do slavery anymore. And insofar as we don't do slavery anymore, work relationships are fine. And if you make any attempt to compare any element of contemporary work relations in the United States to slavery, you are then accused of uh, committing some kind of terrible offense by drawing an equivalence to some kind of horrifying other. So by locating the horrifying other in the past, what is bad about the now can be papered over and trivialized and swept under the rug. And in the States, it's, it's liberalism. It's what is ostensibly the left in the States, which is the tool for constantly reminding our, us of some kind of horrible past that is much worse than anything that goes on now and which therefore uh, makes it so that we are not justifiable in complaining about anything which happens now. And I'm seeing this same frame imported into Europe to have the same effect. So re very recently, uh, this uh, study uh, came out that uh, the BBC reported on claiming that in Britain, race relations are a model for uh, white majority countries. And if you look at the comments section on the Facebook post of that BBC article, People are extremely unhappy that anyone would say anything positive about race relations in the UK. And the reason that people are upset about it is it doesn't matter what you do in terms of improving race relations. The function of the race relations discourse is to create an other in the past that you can use to silence critiques about now. And so if you start to say, well, race is something that we've we've dealt with partially or that we've improved on or that we are improving on or are dealing with then it ceases to have that function and that the discourse needs this to constantly manufacture division and the more you talk about race the more it becomes the only thing you can talk about and the more everything else is silenced or redefined in terms of it and so there there is definitely an effort to get Europeans to talk about race the way Americans do. And if that happens, the function of that discourse will be to silence all grievances. And that's largely what happens in the United States. And it's like, well, it's funny because it's actually very similar to, you know, there was an aspect of imperialism that served that function, that this gross exploitation in the name of, um, obviously, these massive technological advances in capitalism occurred in mainland Britain and England and other places um, in the factories during the 19th century. And part of the whole mythos of the empire was a reminder that there are people in all these other countries living in much graver conditions. So, you know, you're one rung above them. And also but the, this, this whole thing, I mean, the obvious thing is it is precisely racist. It is using the... Um, using the experience of a group or turning a group into a commodity or a fetish object 
for the continued functioning and a fetish object to cover over the crack within the ideological framework of the situation that we're in. Yeah. And the way we talk about race today, especially, uh, really signifies how much that crack has opened up. Before 2008, before the Iraq war, in the 90s, racial discourse was was very uh, you know, colorblind and we are the world, and, and it had all kinds of problems in it, but it was not so much about trying to find bad people in history and use them as fetish points. As there have uh, been more economic distress for the capitalist world system over the last 20 years. As there's been more crisis, there's been more and more of a need to identify scapegoats. And of course, everyone can see it when the right, you know, race baits or blames immigrants or whatever. But the liberal response is to do an inverse version of that, which tosses it at other groups. Because yeah, it's, it's not just the bad actors in the past with the fetish object, it's the suffering of the innocent contemporary people or the, the born experience or the carried down, what do they call it, inherited trauma, which then renders you not human, but a fetish object. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting just to reflect back on the kind of 90s, um, you know, global, we are the world, you know, you had songs also like Michael Jackson's Black or White, and, you know, which was very technologically innovative at the time, where it used kind of blending techniques in the video to kind of, um, you know, move from different races as it were using this kind of you know fancy whatever um sort of blending or blurring in the video and yeah I mean whether we're talking about kind of United Colors of Benetton and the way they kind of played upon um I mean also the AIDS crisis was very significant at this time and this was also something that kind of people rallied around as a focal point for a certain image of suffering and and Benetton very famously or infamously used a photograph of a man dying in hospital who looked like Christ and it's a very um famous image um because he was emaciated and you know his ribs were showing and he 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 kind of had a similar sort of face to the classical image of of Christ and um I suppose, yeah, this idea of a kind of gradual indifferentism um, towards questions of of race or um, ethnic background or origin, you know, and I think I think this played out kind of very positively in a certain experiential sense around things like rave and jungle and particular kind of musical subcultures where the emphasis was in a sense like everyone was there and everyone was different and everyone had a different experience and everyone had a different background, but it was cool. You know, it was cool that there was like, and it wasn't difference enough that would create disharmony necessarily or rivalry or resentment. You know, it was just a kind of, um, you know, genuine appreciation for for people in their singularity as individuals, but also as people with different backgrounds, you know, and, and, and that sounds extremely utopian. And, you know, and of course there would have been tensions and so on. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't wish to downplay those, but I do think in terms of like a tendency, a kind of social tendency, that's sort of where we were going. Like it was, um, you know, yeah, it's because the nineties are, are the, this decade of so much confidence in the global economic system mm. that it's okay then to let the cultural issues be toned down. They have to be toned up as a distraction from critique. So in the nineties, there's a death of critique. And because there's a death of critique, the things that are usually used to distract from critique don't need to be used. I remember the land before time uh, film series, which was huge for radical. people my age, that third land before time film. I love it. There's a 
a water crisis. They're running out of water in the valley, and the di- species of dinosaurs start turning on each other and blaming each other and calling each other water wasters on a species-based line, right? The Triceratops, the lead Triceratops, is especially nasty about this, right? And he goes after the little long-necked dinosaur, Littlefoot, and calls him a water waster. Your your son, your grandson plays with water. You know, he's wasting. Uh, and the dinosaurs turn to Littlefoot, you know, they, they're talking to him and they're going, you know, aren't you bothered by the fact that he's picking on you and picking on Longnecks? And, and Littlefoot goes, well, he's just scared because there's no water. And that's why he's acting this way. You know, and in another one of the films, that same Triceratops, who always is the first to get speciesist and go after the Longnecks. You know, and I think it's the sixth movie, one of the uh, old long-necked dinosaurs is talking about him and goes, he's really a fine sort once you get to know him. I mean, these long-necks who are the victims of his abuse, uh, they're the first to defend him and go, well, he's just scared. And you know, he's just trying to make sure that his, his kids have water. Uh, and really, uh, that level of awareness in a kid's film from the 90s is, is just amazing to me. And if you were to make a film like that or a song like Michael Jackson's mm. Black or White, that today would be an extraordinarily subversive act relative to where we are. Figures like Prince, too, you know, who really kind of also exemplified, you know, um, not only kind of androgyny, but also kind of like, um, you know, sort of uh, racial harmony in a way. Like one of the most, you know, beautiful audiences I've ever seen. And I used to live near the O2, the Dome, which had lots, and, and it must have been, um, I don't know, t- 12 years ago or something. I don't know. I mean, obviously, Prince is dead now, but. It, you know, and I used to, the audiences used to stream out from the dome and I'd try and guess who'd been playing on the basis of what the crowd looked like. And uh, the most violent crowd, um, really rough crowd, was actually Tina Turner for some reason. And uh, <laughs> the most depressed looking crowd was Take That. But um, the most most beautiful looking crowd in terms of, you know, different ages, different, you know, lots of people wearing purple. It wasn't too hard to guess. Um but was the Prince crowd. And it was very, it was very interesting to see that that kind of continuity of that sort of celebration of, um, you know, diversity, not in the sense it's meant today. Yeah, it's funny, because it's the, the dialectical of like identity and in individuals under capitalism, obviously, we talk about it, it's like, we're in this very individualist world, capitalism is so about individuals. It's like, no, it's the precise opposite. What it does is it blandifies and unifies, it disunifying it's a dis- disunification of unity where we all have to do the same thing. We all have to have the same opinion. We all end up being the same. It, it creates a homogenization. And actually, you, know, you have these radical figures like Prince who are so contradictory and so don't fit the mold that, that, so, that it, it defies categorization and you get this broad spectrum of people. And like you were saying with your, with, with the music, um, genres you were referring to that like actually, this world where difference can live alongside each other. And then there is this question of whether a lot of this identitarian stuff is um, not only that there's questions, psychoanalytic questions of like subjectivity and subjectival structures and stuff, but this question of everybody feels so homogenized that there is this sort of almost reaction and desire to instantiate a question of individuality but of course it's a commodified individuality that's not about individuality at all it's a prescribed individuality that can that that means something according to the market it means something according to where we're trying to indicate our place um in the shorthand that people can identify us instead of just accepting people for who they actually are yeah i think it's ironic that prince died in april of 2016 
because I think that's really the moment when you know, 2016 is the year when we pass the point of no return on this whole discursive move. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything that's come after 2016 in pop culture, we've been very lucky if any of it hasn't been absolutely dreadful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we really we crossed a line there. And it's interesting. Nathan Robinson at, at Current Affairs, I think just a, a couple of weeks ago, wrote a piece about how underrated and underappreciated and forgotten Prince is. Mm. Uh, and so much of, of recent discussion about the 90s has been demonizing it as this horrible color blindness place where we you know, forgot about uh, the, the plight of, of racialized people. But you look at the economic statistics in terms of uh, you know, economic gaps, it's not as if the decades after the 90s have been dramatically different in either the size of, say, racial wealth gaps or the trajectory of their growth or, or shrinkage than the 90s. And of course, there is a thing of you have a whole generation of highly educated people who have been overpromised and their experience is is terribly depressing and not, not only disappointing, but, you know, actually, you know, objectively bad. And it is it is easier, unfortunately, to turn that into a contingent issue of a different generation or a different group, rather than actually understanding that it's the whole the whole system of which we are part has created this problem. It's not. It's not. And, and it's it's really useful to to continue to just make it into an unsolvable eternal problem, right? Because if it were solvable, if you could do something about it, then it would lose its discursive utility. The fact that you mm-hmm. can constantly bring it back because it's in the past. Historically, this happened, and you could give any amount of reparation. You would never make anybody whole from that. You can never undo it because it happened. So because it's in the past, it's there to be continuously mined whenever we need to divide people and, and break them apart and and culturally rearrange them. But this is this is the this is the really like radical move in relation to capitalism is that like instead of necessarily just being like obliterate capitalism as, as such, it's it's more an orientation question and a question of understanding its function and responding to it because the capitalist thing, as we see, I think you were kind of touching on this, Benjamin, your intervention with, you know, green products and plant-based. I think plant-based is capitalism's wet dream. But it's, you know, it's constantly problematizing. Constantly we have these contingent issues. And it has to be either in the past, so something that's impossible to solve, constantly generating impossible, impossible issues. Instead of being like, right, we found the solution, there is none. <laughs> and it's not even just that it's impossible to solve. We don't even make any form of contingent progress. If we had to, you know, there's all of these claims that just by talking about it, and I remember how the most recent round of this started in around 2013, 2014. You know, we need to have a conversation about this. This is important. We need to talk about it. Now, there's no obvious connection between talking about it and making it better. There's an assumption that talking about it makes it better. There's an assumption that there's some kind of positive dialectic. But, you know, a lot of people in this in this oeuvre view Donald Trump as primarily a racial figure and his emergence is primarily a racial phenomenon. If that's true, if Donald Trump is a racial figure and he's a racial phenomenon, then the function of the racial discourse, which got kicked up in 2013, 2014 during the Obama presidency, was to create Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So the conversation that people said we needed to have, that conversation produced Trumpism so it's not obvious that talking about it makes it better. Indeed, by talking about it, we reify the frame of analysis, which causes people to think in the antagonistic way. This is the clever thing about psychoanalysis. It's the talk cure, 
because it's not about what you say, it's about what you don't say. So it's about symptoms and language functions as a decoy and the truth emerges in the symptoms, in the symptoms, <laughs> in the symptom. So Trump is the symptom of the discourse. So Trump is what we need to listen to as a symptom. Not all of this, like you can't, we cannot trust what we say. We cannot trust what we say. You go to an, like if we, if all it took was talking about your problems and then it's a given that we'd all know what the problems are. You go to analysis precisely because you don't know what your problem is. Yeah. And you have to speak at somebody and they listen not to what you're saying. What you could talk about fucking a cheese board or mice or the beach. It doesn't matter. The truth emerges in what you don't say. Let, let me just note in your lapses, Helen, of the, the Simpsons, that, of course, the Simpsons did predict the Trump presidency. Yes, too. So exactly. Th- there you go. The unconscious <laughs> uh, is, a, is, a, is a truthful place. No, yeah, I mean, I was, I was going to make a similar point. You made it perfectly about psychoanalysis, you know, so the, the yeah, about the, 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 the role of talking and, one of the, the the hardest things, or it may be impossible, I mean, people like R.D. Lang and David Cooper, in a way, try to kind of imagine what it would be like to ha- have a kind of collective psychoanalysis of everybody by everybody. And I'm very obsessed with this idea, you know. It, so it's not the the let's have a conversation, let's talk about it, which precisely reifies the, the structure or the terms, as Benjamin points out, but something much weirder and deeper. I mean, they try to, you know, when people talk about group analysis and these kind of encounter groups, you know, and I love the idea of the encounter group. I, I tried to set some up at the R.D. Lang Institute in London uh, a couple of years ago and they collapsed after two. We were going to have six or eight because they're, 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 they're extremely fraught. Like they're basically impossible to sort of do very well. And, and, you know, we, we had a topic for each week and, you know, we had a moderator, but things kind of go, get out of hand and people get very upset because it's a kind of free for all. There's obviously we have one rule, which is like no violence or threats of violence. Right. But it's a kind of, you know, it's, it's a potentially very rocky thing to do. And, and, and it, it does indeed become quite antagonistic or it did at least. And, and people don't necessarily want to. To, to do that even if they hypothetically think they might but so there's a kind of you know there's there's going to there is a huge difficulty if we actually did have a proper conversation which would be to say to include all of the symptoms and all of the things that are unsaid you know and 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 so when they did it in the 60s and 70s the encounter groups were sometimes and adam curtis has this in the century of the self the footage from some of these racial encounter groups where he brought, they brought together black and white people to say what they really thought about each other as as bearers of groups you know and the, and these were you know by all accounts kind of quite extreme events i can imagine it's funny my um a, a friend i work with a lot he he has a, a, a like a philosophical it, it started off it's like a non-religion, religious religion, but it's like a philosophical praxis. Almost, although I hate the fucking word praxis, fucking hate it. But anyway, it's a lot of these things that these designed experiences, encounters. He's got various things like this transformance art, and then these ways of encountering people, and it is like really, really influenced by psychoanalysis. But the the funny thing is, though, it's like I always think we don't need to even to go to that stage because the truth is already there. You just get people to talk, but you just need enough people who are able to to listen to the unconscious outbursts 
and for those people to be taken seriously. And I think that's like, you know, the role of the philosopher has been so fucking denigrated or even like the public intellectuals. It's like what you get in our like self-help people like Sam Harris or something, who's a self-help person or Jordan Peterson, who's a self-help person. You know, you don't get like proper... And, you know, then the commodification of like the university and stuff and then the commodification of the arts, because I do probably like sound like really defensive about this. I do think that art has a philosophical purpose. But um, the point being, though, is like I honestly and I've said this a few times that like I think the woke stuff speaks the truth precisely because it's driven with contradiction and it's the contradictions. It, like, so it's highly useful. It's like, thank you. You've been telling us so much about what the real issues are but we just need to like you know it's it's like the the the, yeah any of these instances if you listen to the gaps you listen to the um freudian slips you listen to the imagery you look at the imagery it's like i think it's all there Mm. yeah if you really want to deal with this kind of stuff i think oftentimes the policy is to address the root causes in the situation for the feelings, the negative feelings, right? So for instance, in the States, we have this whole thing recently with Asian American hate, right? And of course, the the same usual moves are being made. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about it. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's have Joe Biden say it's bad. Of course, this is spreading the idea that you could hate Asian Americans over China around the country. There are a lot of people who hadn't encountered this, who are hearing about it through the media and getting the idea, oh, maybe I should have a division with other people over this. Um, But beyond that, what's the real reason that there have been instances of this? Well, the reason is that there's rising great power competition between the United States and China catalyzed by the fact that there's this virus spread all over the world, which has its origin point in China and which people have various conspiracy theories about how it got kicked off and what the Chinese government might be trying to do with it. Right. And they have those conspiracy theories because of this agonistic us versus them cold war us China lens. Right. So if you wanted to tone that down, the way you would do that would be to tone down the feeling of a us China rivalry and the perception of that. Right. If you tone that down and you you didn't portray the Chinese as an agonistic other, then we wouldn't be looking at people as potentially agonistic others insofar as they represent or reflect that international politics division. The thing is, the Biden administration is entirely committed to continuing the general trend in U.S. policy, which goes back at least to Obama's pivot to Asia, of viewing China as something that needs to be contained and something that needs to be dealt with and treated as an other. And the media, of course, covers everything bad that ever happens in China as as part of that. So they, they say, on the one hand, don't hate Asian Americans, don't equate Asian Americans with China. But on the other hand, they're constantly saying, be worried about China. China's rising. China's competitive. China's not like you. China's authoritarian. China's genociding the Uyghurs. China's stealing your technology. We need tariffs against the Chinese. So they keep doing this over and over. And then they think that just because they say, oh, don't blame Asian Americans for that, that that's going to take care of the problem. The problem is in the policy it's not in the discussion the discussion just reflects what comes out of that do, do you think there's another thing with this maybe is a bit controversial but i think it's quite obvious with the asian american thing in that um there's an antagonism in terms of the discourse of the last 10 years or whatever in terms of asian americans like they don't fit that the model that keeps getting weaponized. And so I imagine that there's uh, frustrations on the part of that community 
and also resentments elsewhere. Well, there are a lot of declassed professionals, kind of uh, lower rung, fragile college educated people who haven't really made it in the United States, who see an opportunity to use the racialized discourse to build careers, mm-hmm. right? And this is something that has been done very effectively within the African-American community. It's something that is in the process of being spread to the Latina, Latino, Latina, Latinx, whatever you want community, uh, Hispanic community. Uh, and now it's something which people are trying to import into Asian American politics. And there's a set of people who have degrees in the social sciences and the humanities who are kind of operating at the fringe, would like to be able to monetize those degrees, and who see these discourses as opportunities to build structures which they can then get people to give money to out of guilt or shame or uh, negative feeling. Uh, that they can get to have you bring in as diversity consultants. There's a whole industry for a chunk of people. And these people have a, have a real interest in heavily, and they're trained because they went to university and American university is if at nothing else, it's good at getting you to speak confidently about whatever it is that you have to say. It's good at giving you presentation skills. These people are powerfully good at persuading people that they are spokespeople for a group. They're not spokespeople for a group. They're just the college-educated people in that group. They're the people who experience the smallest amount of uh, of misery. Uh, well, maybe not of misery, but of, of economic exploitation. It's the people that we don't hear from in these groups who are the most worst, uh, who, are, who are worst off in every case. And, and this is something in general, just when we talk about, say, post-colonial thought. Anytime you hear a voice that comes from a marginalized group, the fact that you're hearing it is indicative that it's not that marginal. If it were really marginal, you wouldn't hear it. If it were really marginal, it wouldn't come in a language which you speak. Because if you speak a Western language, then you have to have a level of education which excludes you from possibly being among the very, very most marginal. Not not to mention these kind of incidents of, like, uh, you know, transracialism, I suppose, where you have these kind of usually white female academics identifying into oppressed minorities. I don't know, like Jessica Krug and... I mean, you know, there's Rachel been a whole sort of, yeah, but there's been a whole spate of them where mm-hmm. the, you know, on some level the calculation is I can get ahead or I can get further within this field by pretending to be from this dispossessed or oppressed group and speak, therefore, from this position of marginality. This is this bourgeois power grab that really steals from the people who are actually oppressed, including people from those minorities who, you know. Actually, as as you said, Benjamin, like they're, ex- they're by definition excluded. But it's like, yeah, it is. The funny thing to me, though, is like, why would you, why would you so desperately want to become a like wage slave to it? Like, you're just a different degree of wage slave. You know, you're like this thing of like the prestige of having an immensely stressful job that isn't even that pay- well paid anyway. I, I don't want to just speak negatively about these declassed professionals. Mm-hmm. In fairness to them, okay, in the States, we've sold people this idea that you get a university degree and then you're supposed to be set for life and you're supposed to have stability, right? So people go and get this and then they're not treated the way that they expect to be treated. They're not given the opportunities they expect to be given. They don't have the stability that they expect to have. And it manifests as this deep, deep uncertainty, precarity. And so if you see an opportunity to make a career for yourself in the woke industry, uh, that's going to be very attractive to somebody who's operating on the margins, who has a college degree, but maybe has a lot of debt, hasn't been able to find a footing. And because we've overproduced college-educated people and we don't have social roles for them, 
we get this pathological behavior, but it's not because the, the, these professionals are inherently bad people. They've been put in a situation which milks bad behavior out of them. And the function of this is to keep not just them in, in their place, but to keep everybody in all of these racial groups, including white people, uh, down and divided. I think they should bring back sort of like artisanal training for everyone. Like everyone, you know, should be taught for a year or two how to make shoes or something. Yeah, this, exactly. is my solu- this is my solution to the problem of the PMC exactly. is... is- <laughs> It's it's irreducibly a global problem because as <laughs> yeah. we've had all of this globalization, we have races to the bottom on everything, on mm-hmm. wages, on taxes, on regulations. It means that we don't have enough jobs for people. It means that we don't have enough useful stuff for people in the West to do. And yet we're unwilling to just give them money to consume the stuff made in, in other parts of the world. And since we won't pay people to be consumers, yet we need them to consume a lot, mm-hmm. we threaten them with psychological misery unless they invent a job for themselves. They have to hustle. They have to invent a social role for themselves because we don't have one. It would be interesting to see, sorry, just on this UB point of UBI, you know, whether some countries like Spain were proposing to use Corona, the the, the pandemic lockdown to, to bring in UBI, basically. It'll be interesting to see if countries actually do that. We're in this liminal space on UBI where we, we have an economy that's large enough to support a bad UBI, but mm. not a good one. Well, this is the thing as well, though, because it's just like, oh, we just this is the this is the neo serfdom where um, the people who get to make the money and to decide what people watch on the screens that they're renting, you know, the, the Netflix thing that they're renting and everybody, they have the freedom, but everybody else is just sort of given the pennies, the tokens for the company store, for their company store. Um, it's pretty depressing. But the funny thing is, though, it's like, yeah, and this is maybe, you know, where we, so in terms of what we're talking about with reality bites, and then maybe it sounded like that the millennial generation was like, no, you can't drop out. But then actually there is a, a point of agreement that like I definitely have with that notion, you know, it's like, and maybe like you, where it's just like, I, you know what, like, I feel actually impressed that people can do it. I can't do it just because the prize is just not worth it for me. Like what, do you know what I mean? It's like, Really, but the question is like, yeah, what do you do? But if enough people uh, are able to, and this is why I think like the real emancipation, the real message for emancipation, are educated people. I think like working people know this, and there's a sort of an intelligence there just by dint of being excluded. Like you see the truth more clearly, and actually the people who need to understand the emancipatory message of the shitness of capital are the bourgeoisie. <laughs> Uh, you'd never be one of these millennial hustlers unless you really had to do it. Do you think and so? And so the people who are creating these these jobs in the woke industry for themselves, they don't have a good alternative to doing that. I know a lot of people who, who could, for instance, could be normal, could be, you know, obviously we're talking a lot about- Yeah, they could work for Walmart. They could go work for well, Amazon. You could be a but librarian They've been or socialized a from birth. Yes, it's From birth to not do that. And then when they go into teaching, they quit after a couple of years because they get so thoroughgoingly abused by yes, it is state governments awful. that don't want yes. to pay teachers, don't want to treat them appropriately. You know, absolutely. You know, I, I entirely agree with you. I entirely agree with you. But I just think the solution is if enough people don't do it, like enough, like there has to be a sort of union of people, you know. And this is the silly thing. But, like, but they don't have the union of people. Well, That's why they're in this situation because the, the unions I do, are I dead. I do think, though, that like, yeah, I mean, yeah, no excess and all that. But yeah, you're, and you're absolutely right. Like people, the the retention of teachers beyond five years or something in the UK is, is like the percentage is a joke. 50% of teachers or something leave after two years. It is immensely, like it's all immensely ridiculous. 
And obviously not everybody can make their own, uh, I don't know, handmade pajama bottom company or something like that. But it no. is it, it is just It, it really depressing. is a mind fuck if yeah. you're raised from childhood to get a college degree and to be in the professional class and to think of yourself as a professional with those kinds of values. Mm-hmm. And then to be in a, a, a regular working class job. The cognitive dissonance between the role that you've been prepared for and the role that you're in is so psychologically upsetting. It causes these people to have serious mental health problems and then to act out socially in all kinds of pathological ways. I entirely agree with you. I entirely agree with you. But I think at least the message that the the, the rat race is not this utopian thing is also just useful for to whisper in people's ears, even though, yes, like the alternative is to really, really struggle as well. That's the thing. I get to go home to where my parents live in Indiana when I have some time, you know, where I don't have something. Yes. I have a safe place to be. A lot of these people, they don't have a safe place to be. A lot of these people, the alternative to the hustle is to be proletarianized Mm -hmm. and to uh, have a total loss of self-esteem and self-confidence, which ends in drug abuse, suicide, Uh, you know, it it can kill them. I absolutely agree. I do think, though, that there there is an emancipatory message in all of that where I think that it all eventually will be driven to a stage where there will have to be some kind of uh, either we're going towards neo-serfdom, where we're all the serfs of the tech oligarchs, or we have to have eventually some kind of unity in actually understanding the libidinal quality of capital and that there is no utopia on... Well, utopia exists on Earth in the here and now, and that's it. Like, all you have is the here and now. And uh, the promise of getting a promotion is not going to fix you. I don't know. I just can't do it. I can't do it. But I, I can survive without doing it. So, yeah, just I about, mean, just and, about. But, but this is, you know, material reality, reality bites. I mean, you know, like these, are, these are not insignificant. These are who we are. Like this is who, you know, people are their economic constraints, you know, in some deep way, you know, however much people might play with them or pretend or whatever it's like Mm -hmm. you know that's that is who we are but you know okay so are we saying then that like workers of the world unite is just a fallacy like is there not is there not something that can be done by d-class uh proletarianized pmc that is other than just the hustle is there nothing to be done i mean i think that you know the point about the recognition of the the shared lack or the imposed lack you know was always look you know this thing whether we call it like um labor power or whatever is being stolen from us and this involves time uh you know apart from anything else and so communism would be free time um amongst other things and that what unites us is our our shared exploitation so what we share is a lack is a is a negation it's what's being taken from us that unites us right i mean it's like really really obvious in a way but you know, I think I think the, you know, the 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 problem of the getting the middle class or whatever you want to say to identify their interests with the with working class insofar as it it still exists in in and it doesn't exist in the same classical formation. It's much harder to organise for one thing. You can't. There's the you know the factories are not in the West. And remember, you know, Marx thought that 
it would be in Britain that there would be a revolution, right, mm-hmm. where the contradictions of industrial capitalism were most apparent, not in pe- not in peasant, you know, Russia, right? Um, but, you know, is the PMC, and this is sort of Catherine Liu's point as well, like, they can't help but virtue hoard, you know, they can't help but kind of take over and, you know, but then differentiate, the, but, you know, their social form of social reproduction is precisely to separate themselves off from the working class, which is why, like, the left have almost no appeal to the working class, right, in the UK or This is US. exactly it. I mean, this is exactly it. And I know, like, Benjamin Britain about this so much about, like, yeah, this this inherent striverism and differentiation, and then you get a pyramid of virtue on the so-called left, but it's not at all the left. It's much more conservative than even the conservative mm. movement, like by definition. I mean, it's like very obvious it's on the side of capital and overtly so. I mean, obviously conservatism is on the side of capital, but at least, you know, sometimes there's a sort of nod to um to the to the opposite. But like do you, but is this a question of pre- bringing people up with different values, or are we just headed to, to oblivion? Well, I think that there might be some kind of political response, and that's what I continue to look for, a political response. What I think won't work is a kind of moralistic, uh, you know, through capitalism, you have to change your lifestyle while the system around you continues to prevent you from changing your lifestyle. And I think what we keep getting trapped in, uh, not us specifically, but just the left in general, uh, and this goes back to the 60s, is this idea that we can voluntarily opt out in some way, that we can individually, one at a time, lifestyle change out uh, without having to do politics. We have to find a way to do politics in this much more difficult environment for doing politics. And I've had periods where I've had very little faith in our ability to do that. I've had periods where I've been a little bit more uh, energetic and enthused. All I know is that we have to keep looking for ways to do it. I guess the question is then, though, with with both parties being so on the side of capital, who does this new political movement come from? I, and that's what I mean. Like, I'm not saying like workers of the world unite is a, is a moralistic question. I don't think it's moralistic at all. And I don't think this should be a moral thing at all. Like, I totally agree with you guys. And maybe sort of like, just because I get so frustrated, it's just like, what can we do? Nothing. But like, where does this where does this political movement come from? Well, I, I think, and we could have a whole conversation about this. And we're getting at the at the end of the hour, so we probably have to wrap soon. But I think it would have to come from some kind of organization which was explicitly designed to balance the worker and professional components, as opposed to what we have, which are organizations which invariably get overrun by professionals. Uh, become heavily, heavily oriented around the professional way of doing politics and professional values, become exclusive to workers, push them out completely, and that makes it even harder. The the workers are a lumpen force, a subaltern now, that's incredibly difficult to organize. So if in in our organization we also include a bunch of cultural language which is designed to kick out and alienate those people as not being as educated or as uh, capable or competent, as being technocratically not okay. And as long as we're doing that, the fact that they're already a subaltern where the unions are increasingly gone and there's increasingly very little ability to organize, uh, that's going to be the dominant paradigm that we have a working class that seems impossible to organize and professional movements that don't have any kind of of large-scale appeal. And we'll see the left and continue to decline along that line. We've got to have an organization which is institutionally designed to prevent that takeover by the professionals, which includes a professional element, but balances that professional element with uh, a, a working class element and does what's necessary to actually incorporate worker perspectives. 
Yeah, and I guess part of the issue is that the greater the um, proletarianized PMC, the more difficult that is to create just because the messaging always gets captured in the wrong direction. Hope springs eternal. So thank you guys <laughs> so much for listening to us today. We're going to go over and do the B-side of the podcast, which is for our listeners on Patreon. So feel free to go over to the Patreon and support the pod if you'd like to hear that. And in the meantime, have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.